Acts chapter 9 tonight. That might be one of the prettiest verses of any hymnal that I've ever heard, where it says, Let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. And then he goes, the, the hymn writer is very honest. He says, Daily, uh, prone to wonder, I feel it. Prone to leave you, even though your goodness and though you love me, I feel my, my heart being drawn away. Let your goodness like a fetter bind thy wandering heart to thee. That's a beautiful song. Thank you for singing that, Miss Jasmine. Let me first of all encourage you. This has nothing to do with the message. We'll get to this. This week I encountered two different people who just upset me. Uh, one of them was father and one of them was mother. No, no, no. Uh, uh, I was at Kroger and I was checking out and... Uh, I got behind a lady who was couponing, and that wasn't the lady that upset me. Uh, you know, she's saving money, that's fine with me. But I got behind, I went to another line because she was taking a pretty good while. So I went to the line right across the way, and there was a lady there that even when the, uh, the person who was checking the lady out said, Hi, ma'am, how are you? She just ignored her. Just didn't even say anything. And so that's okay. Maybe she didn't hear her, or maybe she's just having a rough day. We went on, the lady swiped her card to pay for the groceries that she had. And, and uh, so there was a long pause there where nothing was happening. And uh, the lady said, oh, I'm sorry, ma'am, you're going to have to swipe it again. I didn't tell you you need to hit credit or debit. And that lady commenced to going off on that cash register uh, clerk there. And she said, well, maybe you should have told me. And I'm just right behind her, you know, I'm trying to check out with my, with my shrimp and hot dogs I was going catfishing <laughs> this is supposed to be a good evening, you're kind of putting me in a bad mood and she says well ma'am, I just don't like to embarrass people, um, and, and I was just trying to be kind, and she says well, I don't get embarrassed very easily and I looked across the way at that lady standing there with the volatile lady still there, and I said, ma'am, you don't deserve what she's doing to you right now because she had been nothing but kind the entire time. Now, I don't know if this lady was a Christian or not, but I hope she wasn't <laughs> because if she was, she was giving us a bad name. The second person that I uh, struggled with this week is I attended a gospel music concert last night. And we were in the back row. Our backs were touching the farthest seat from the very from the stage. We were maybe 150 yards from the scene. And I could barely make out whether the people singing were men or women. And in gospel singing, some of the men sound like women. <laughs> Brian Free, Free. <laughs> but we were really far away, and, and we were having a good time. Now, we weren't uh, being super loud, but occasionally we'd say, Man, what a beautiful song, or, or something like that. And I'm not kidding you, in a building where you would assume everybody showed up who was there for gospel singing was a Christian, we had people shaking their heads at us. And at one point, a man who was about 80 years old took his hand and cuffed it so that he could hear the music, but not us. And he was doing it very big. And I was thinking, man, that's really annoying. And maybe we were, I don't think we were being loud. Maybe I'm very biased in my opinion, but here's what I'm trying to say tonight. Let us love others. The only 
thing that we have to show is the love of Christ. Because we have no gifts. When you come in, in contact with Christ, you realize that any gift you have was given from Him. Any talent, any ability that you have, any uh, uh, money that you have, it was all given from Him. And so it's not like we're a bunch of boastful people. We ought to be a humble people. And we ought to show this old sinful world that's hurting with no love in it. We ought to show them the love that we've taken a part of. And at a place where, you know, Kroger or somebody acts just outright, just makes a horse's patoot out of themselves. But then at a gospel singing concert, people are very confrontational. I can't believe they're interrupting this. And it's just, let's love on people. And let's give other people the benefit of the doubt, if you will. Uh, the first commandment is love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind. What's the second, though? It's like the first. Love thy neighbor as thyself. That neighbor's not always going to be saved, but we are to show them the love of Christ that abides in us. So, as, as somebody who has the opportunity to speak to you, please, please, the next time you feel ready to go off, the next time you feel ready to cut somebody off on the road because they cut you off, just ask yourself, would Christ really do what I'm thinking about doing at this point? And I hope maybe we as a church begin to get a testimony in our community that, man, that person goes to Joshua Baptist, and they sure do act different. They sure act like they care about me. And that's all I want to say about that. Acts chapter 9, we'll start reading in verse number 1. Last week, we looked at the commencement of Paul. What I mean by that is, we looked at the very first time that the Apostle Paul is ever mentioned. But at that time, he's not known by the name Paul. He's known by the name of Saul of Tarsus. And the Bible says that he was consenting unto Stephen's death. Now, we really didn't talk about Paul at all last week, if you remember. Basically, the hero of our story was Stephen. And his testimony in Paul's life is really what led us to where we're at tonight. Acts chapter 9, verse number 1. We'll only read a few verses, so please give the Word of God your full undivided attention. The Bible says in verse number 1, and Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus to the synagogues, that if he found any of this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus. And suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. And he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And he trembling and astonished said, Lord, what will thou have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. And the men which journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no man. And Saul arose from the earth, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no man, but they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither did eat nor drink. Let's have a word of prayer tonight. We'll begin. 
Lord God, I pray that you'd please be with us in the few moments that we have together. Lord, you have brought these people here, not for fellowship and not for fun. Lord, we're not having any food. You brought us here to hear from you. And Lord, you promised that where there are people gathered in your name, you will meet with them. And your spirit will work in their hearts. And so, Lord, we ask you to fulfill your promise tonight. You always do. And, Lord, I pray that the Spirit of God and the Word of God would be quick and powerful and would show us where we are and what we need to fix and really what we need to give you praise for. Lord, please make this night a memorable night, one that lasts, I pray in your Son's precious name. Amen. One of the greatest things about Christianity is every person's story is just a little different. We all have our unique history. We have our background. We have where we came from, and now we have where we are. We all have our own testimony, if you will. And quickly, I want to say here, the thing that makes a good soul winner a good soul winner is not his amount of scripture he knows. It is how good he can share his testimony. Because no, anybody can read the Bible, but when somebody shares their own genuine, impactful experience with Christ, others take note. And so we all have that. But have you ever been around a group of people who seem to have better ones than you? I've been there, man. I, I, I have a pretty lame testimony, not, not to degrade my salvation experience, because mine's just as... Uh, just as real and just as valid as anybody's. But, you know, I always say, well, I was 12 years old and it was my first year attending youth camp and and I was able to that night hear a preacher and for some reason what he said and what the Spirit of God worked in my heart, he really convicted me and I moved forward after about the 700th verse of invitation And I walked forward, and I met my youth director down there, and he said, what do you need, Andrew? Almost like, hey, we're going to order pizza tonight? (laughs) Like, what do you need? And I said, I need to be saved. And he took me back there in the back, and I was able to bow my knee and uh, bow my head before the Lord and ask him to save me, and I'm thankful for that day. I remember the burden that was lifted off my shoulder. But there have been times when I've been in a roundtable discussion And other people's just seem so much better. You know, they'll say something like, Oh, sitting on a bar stool. Man, you're 12 years old. I was a bad 12-year-old. I was trying to find the answers to life in the bottom of a bottle of root beer. And I got to the bottom of that bottle, and I realized there was nothing there. And I went into that restroom, and Brother Tony had laid a track on the urinal in there. Amen, Brother Tony? Amen? Amen? Brother Tony had left a track there on the urinal, and, and I didn't find the answers in that bottle, so I looked in that track there, and on the back of that track was a picture of an ugly dude. Uh, Mine's not on there yet, y'all. <laughs> and when that picture was put on that track, you're actually a pretty sharp-looking guy, I have to say so myself, Dad. So uh looked like Fonzie on the back of that thing. And I, I looked there and it said, Do you know if you died today that you'd go to heaven? And I said, No, I don't. And as a 12-year-old, I knelt there in that urine-covered floor and... <laughs> 
And, and you're just like, man, what a testimony. It goes to the next guy. Well, I grew up in London, England, and I used to kill people. That sounds like Jack the Ripper. Are you, are you making these up? And he said, yeah, I was planning to kill somebody that evening, and the Lord got a hold of my heart. And I realized that what I was doing for fulfillment and gratification just wasn't what the Lord had for me. And, and the Lord spoke to me that night, almost like, like a brick or an anvil hit me over the head. You're like, that's all Looney Tunes, man. You're not pulling the wool over my eyes. You've got a lame testimony like me. You just had to butter yours up to make it look better. Tonight, what we're going to cover is a guy with an awesome testimony. Let me tell you, there's nothing made up about this. Everything the Bible says really happened. And now we have our own mental images and our own pictures of what Paul or Saul's salvation experience looked like. But can I just say, it was awesome. But can I say so was yours? Whether you were 12 years old and your mama late, uh, laid in the bed with you and showed you how to, how to know Christ as your Savior, or whether you were in the jail cell, the salvation experience is amazing. No matter the geography, no matter the circumstances, God's love saving a sinner who was wicked and condemned to hell is an amazing feat before an almighty God. But there are three things, three experiences that are always the same with every testimony. It doesn't matter if you were 12 years old, whether you were 2 years old, or whether you find yourself like Paul as an assassin of the church, three things remain the same. We're going to look at those tonight. First of all, I want you to look at the man against Christ. The man against Christ. In verse number 1, we are not introduced to our character but really, we began to find out a little bit about him. The Bible says in verse number one, And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord. First of all, this man against Christ was a dedicated one. You say, what do you mean? I mean, look how the Bible words this verse. And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter. What an odd way to say something. And you say, oh, that's just the KJV. Well, the reason the KJV says things the way it does is so that we will have a greater picture in our minds of how things went down. And let me tell you what I believe this means tonight. Have you ever heard somebody say this? Yeah, I eat, drink, and sleep that. And they'll say something like, I, 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 I eat, sleep, breathe that. I, it said a lot about hunting. When I go to uh, hang out with friends and say, man, I just eat, sleep, and breathe hunting. I'm like, well, you need to get a better appetite because there are seasons where you're going to starve. <laughs> but this is what it's saying. Saul breathed threatening and persecuting the church. It was just as much a part of him as the very next breath he took. He found fulfillment out of this. He found pleasure. He found gratification. It was his life's duty. You see, Paul was a very educated man. Saul was a very talented man. The Bible teaches us that he was raised at the feet of the Pharisee named Gamaliel, a very wise man, a very educated man. 
Chances are uh, Saul studied at the school at Jerusalem, studied divinity and theology, and he was a Hebrew of the Hebrew, if you will. He was a, a, a man who had it going his way, but he loved his work. You know the Bible says about every person before they come to know Christ? Ephesians chapter 2, the Bible says, And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. Where in time past, ye, not Saul, ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince and power of the air. And we all know who that is. The spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we had all our conversation in time past, in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath. You know what you found your pleasure in before you got saved? You say, oh, those race cars. No, it was you. It was yourself. Whatever made you feel that high or that buzz, that's what you were. See, for Saul, his was just threatening and killing the church. But we all had it, didn't we? We all had ours. We all had the, the things that we enjoyed, the things that we sought after with all of our heart. And yet when Saul came in contact with Christ, his priorities changed. It was his dedication. Not only was it his dedication, it was his desire. Look in verse number 2. Now, this is very unique. You ever met somebody that just worked harder than they ought to? Very rare does that happen anymore. But look in verse number two. Saul was this guy. Now he found his self-gratification out of uh, threatening the church. And so verse number two tells us, And he went unto the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus to the synagogues that if he found any of this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. Let me give you a visual of this. Have you ever had a dog that played fetch? You take the ball or you take the bone or you take the rope and you throw it, and the dog brings it back to you and he's just waiting there with his tail shaking, he's quivering. You know what I do? I fake throw all the time. I love it. I'm like, I'm so much smarter than you, animal. I love it. I don't know why. Uh, maybe that was what I needed to change after I met Christ. I don't know. But I know that when you get that ball or you get that rope or you get that bone, that dog waits at your feet. And he says, oh, come on, throw that. Throw it. 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 And that's why when you fake throw, he's like, oh, you got me. Oh, you got me. But come on, get it. And he stays there waiting on you to throw it. Have you ever played with a lazy dog? It's like, I'm doing this once, no more. <laughs> but if you have a dog that has that anticipation, that excitement, that drive, no matter how many times you throw that ball, your arm's going to fall off before your dog quits. Y'all ever played to fetch with a dog like that? That's Saul. He kills Stephen. Two chapters later, he's like, send me somewhere. Send me somewhere. I've heard that there's some Christians down. I feel really bad for the camera guys there. I wasn't even thinking about you guys. Sorry. That's Saul. Saul's waiting at the feet 
of the man who writes his orders saying, hey, I hear there's some more Christians on down the road. If you'll just send me that way, I will go do it. He's obsessed with it. He really found his pleasure. It was his desire to see every Christian die or imprisoned. Romans chapter 3 says this about us. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. And we know that verse. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Colossians chapter 1 verse 21 tells us, And you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled. See, the problem with us is, even though we were wicked sinners, we get prideful about who we were in the past. And we say, oh, we weren't as bad as that guy. The Bible says in 1 John that whosoever transgresseth transgresseth the law in one point is guilty of all. And so this man that Saul was, was directly opposed to everything God stood for. And so were you. So was I. We didn't have priorities of pleasing God. We look at homosexuals and we say, I just don't know how they can do that. You know what? They're, they're finding gratification apart from God. And we wonder why they would do such a wicked abomination. Because they don't have God. And they're wicked. They have an abominable mind. The, their, their flesh has been given over to lasciviousness. They know not God. Stop expecting them to act like they're holy when they're never called to be. We wonder why the world looks worldly. My question is, why does the church look worldly? You see, before we met Christ, we were to look worldly because we were the children of the world. The Bible says that we were of our father, the devil. But man, that glorious day, Christ saved us. He changed all that. But I'll get to that later. I just couldn't help but say it there because it's just too good a news. Thirdly, I want you to look at this, his depravity. His depravity. Now, if you look in uh, uh, John chapter 16, verse number 2, you find a prophecy of Saul. And you say, what do you mean? I say the Bible foretells the job description of Saul. John chapter 16, verse 2, the Bible says, They shall put you out of the synagogues, yea, the time cometh, that whosoever killeth you will think that he doeth God service. So there would come a time when Christians would be persecuted, would be killed, and would be put out of the synagogue, and the people that were doing it were doing it in the name of the Lord. That's what Saul was. Saul thought he was doing what God wanted him to do. Saul was a Pharisee, man. He was a holy man. Nobody in the entire land understood the law better than Saul. And yet he was doing what he thought was right. Jeremiah chapter 17 verse 9 says that we were doing that even before we met Christ. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? 
You see, before we uh, were saved, we thought that we were earning our way to heaven or we were living our time on earth here and this was our heaven. And we were trying to be good people and we were trying to do the things that pleased us and pleased our friends and pleased those around us. But at the end of the day, Saul was so confused that he thought he was doing God a favor. Now, if you know anything about religion, you know there is an abominable doctrine taught by Calvinists called total depravity. What that is, is it means that man is so deceitfully wicked that there's no way they could desire God, there's no way they could seek God. Psalm chapter 51 says that from our mother's womb, David says, I was shapen in iniquity. And so that doctrine teaches that from the womb... We were so wicked and so reprobate and so wrong that God had to quicken us to salvation. Now, I don't believe that. I believe if you look at a man standing in a chariot in the book of Acts and he's reading uh, uh, the book of Isaiah. And he say, he's reading it and a man comes to him and he says, Understandest thou what thou readest? He says, Oh, I, I, how can I except some men would show me? You know what he was doing? He was searching for God. He was trying to find answers. And I don't think it takes a spark from God to want to know, how do I escape hellfire? Luke chapter 16, as soon as that man woke up in hell, he understood that he needed God and that his brothers needed God. That's why he looked up and said, Father Abraham, if you would just allow me or send somebody to go tell my brothers about this terrible place. You see, total depravity is a, a false doctrine. But terrible depravity is not. Because we were all depraved. We were wicked from our mother's womb. Our hearts did not seek after the things of God. And many of you did find yourselves on a bar stool. Many of you did find yourselves in the darkest and the lowest places. Many of you found yourself there. But thanks be to God that that day He quickened us. He made us alive and brought us together with Christ to make us sit in heavenly places. Saul was just a man who was confused. He was a man against God. Secondly tonight, I want you to look at the meeting with Christ. The meeting with Christ. Look here in verse number 3. The Bible begins to tell us that Jesus appears to Saul. Verse 3, the Bible says, And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus. And suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. And he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? He said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. First of all, I want you to notice this, and this will always be consistent in every single salvation experience. Notice the fall. Verse number four, and he fell to the earth. I don't know if you've ever had the opportunity to lead somebody to the Lord. But if you've ever started, I start at John 3.16 because I'm a little uh, uh, slow, and I can remember that one. Say, John 3.16. And I've had the opportunity to lead some to the Lord, and I show them that verse. And I'll move over to how the law requires a penalty for their sin. 
And the law was perfect and we were not perfect. And I began to show them the Romans road. And if you've ever had the privilege of doing that, you know exactly what I'm talking about. There comes a time when they fall. When they break. And I don't mean this in a wrong, weird way. I mean a man must realize he's undone before God, before God can do anything for him. And right here, I understand the Bible is talking about a physical fall to the earth. And many of us picture a donkey, although one is not mentioned. I believe that God so shined upon Saul that he fell. And whether you want to believe it was in awe, whether you want to believe it was in disbelief or amazement, whatever you believe, he fell to the ground. I said last week, the hardest thing about winning people to Christ is getting them lost. And that's exactly where Saul is. He realizes for the very first time that everything he's done is not right. And he realizes just like a revelation that all of the works he spent his entire life on have been futile. And now the one who is appearing to him in light and majesty and glory, he falls to the ground. Do you remember your fall? I remember mine. I told you that my testimony was a little anticlimactic. But I remember as I went forward, I gripped that, that pew, and you've heard that before, but it was a chair. And the chairs had padding on them, although it didn't seem like it because by the end of the week, your hiney hurt so bad at youth camp. I don't know why, but I remember gripping that. And I remember literally battling the Lord. I could feel the, the Holy Spirit telling me, Andrew, you know what, what you're feeling. You know you need to go forward. And I would literally grip that, and I would take steps and then retreat. They say the first step's the hardest. No, the one all the way there is the hardest for me. Because I would do this. And I'm sure the person standing behind me was like, man, he's two-stepping to uh, uh, I surrender all. What a weirdo. (laughs) But I was broken. But I wasn't broken yet. Because I was battling. There was a conflict, and it, it, it felt like Satan was telling me one thing, and, and the Lord was telling me another. And I held on to that chair, and I gripped that chair, and I went forward, and I was holding my composure just fine. I was okay. And my youth director said, Andrew, what do you need? And when I spoke, I broke. I said, I need to be saved. He's like, what? What? I went back to the back and the room that was there, a a little counseling room and I I could, you know people say they could point to the tile well I could come close, I'd be within about four of them okay, I take up a lot of room I have large feet but I remember kneeling down there and I was sobbing uncontrollably Now, I told my wife, there's only two things in my life that have really brought tears to my eyes. One, it's Christ, and two, it's losing my family. 
I've always feared that. That's always been something to affect me. And those two things have brought tears to my eyes. But that night, I've never cried that violently in my entire life. I lost it. And you say, that wasn't like my salvation experience at all. That's fine. Tears were never a bridge to get you to heaven. But I will say there had to come a fall. There had to come a time when you realized you couldn't do it on your own. And that through the marvelous, miraculous gift of God's grace, He made a way. And you fall right then. Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up. You know what he says? Then said I, woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for mine eyes have seen the King. And when you see the King, you'll fall. But my fear is, a lot of people never fell. A lot of people never looked up and saw and then looked down and fell. What does falling mean? It means submission. In wrestling terms, it's tapping out. It means that your will, your way, no longer counts. And you fall and submit yourself to the plan of God for salvation. Oh, Saul fell. The woman who was washing the feet of Jesus came in. She was a sinful woman. The Bible says that she was so broken that her tears were the lubricant as she washed the feet of Jesus. You know what she was? She was broken. But all too often I fear that Christians say words and they're the Pharisees sitting on the other side of the table. They're not broken. Conviction, note this, conviction is conversion. There is no conversion when there is no conviction. And you must fall before God and say, Lord, whatever you have for me, and that's the fall. Secondly, I want you to note the fear. Verse number 6. And he trembling and astonished said, Lord, what will thou have me to do? You know what amazes me is how everybody else in the Bible fears God but we fail to. I want you to take your Bibles to Joshua chapter 2. In Joshua, there's a great story. No doubt you've heard it maybe in Sunday school when you were very young. Joshua chapter 2, verse number 8. The Bible tells of Rahab and how she is hiding some spies from uh, uh, the people of Jericho. Verse number 8, she hides them on her roof, and she says, And before they were laid down, she came up unto them, unto the roof, and she said unto the men, I know that the Lord hath given you the land, and that your terror is fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land faint because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up uh, the water of the Red Sea for you when ye came out of Egypt. And what ye did unto the two kings of the Amorites that ye were, uh, that were on the other side of Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom ye utterly destroyed. And as soon as we heard these things, our heart did melt, neither did there remain any more courage in any man because of you. 
For the Lord your God, He is God in heaven above and in earth beneath. These are heathens. These are men and women of Jericho who know they've already lost a battle that's not been fought. And Rahab looks at him and says, We're scared to death of your God. Take your Bible to 1 Kings chapter 2. 1 Kings chapter 2, I'm sorry, 1 Kings chapter 4. 1 Kings chapter 4, there's another story where people who know very little about God are the ones who are the most afraid of Him. In 1 Samuel chapter 4, here's another story where the Jews bring the Ark of the Covenant to battle. As soon as it arrives in the camp, they all scream and they all shout and they all say, Thanks be to God, this is our victory. Verse number 5, the Bible says, uh, uh, 1 Samuel, I'm in 1 Kings. 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 5 through 8. The Bible says, And when the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel shouted with a great shout, so that the earth rang again. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shout, they said, What meaneth the noise, this great shout in the camp of the Hebrews? And they understood that the the Lord was coming to the camp. And the Philistines were afraid. For they said, God is coming to the camp. And they said, Woe unto us, for there have not been such a thing heretofore. Woe unto us, who shall deliver us out of the hand of these mighty gods? These are the gods that smote the Egyptians with all the plagues in the wilderness. Heathens who were scared and fearful of our God. Now take your Bible to James. James chapter 2. Now my dad mentioned this morning, James, a lot of people don't like James chapter 2. I love James chapter 2 because it teaches about grace. It teaches about how a man's works can't save him, but how to other people we ought to live righteously. James chapter 2, the Bible says this. Uh, Verse 19, notice, Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe. And what's the next word? And tremble. You see, it doesn't matter if you're a man of Jericho. It doesn't matter if you're a Philistine or whether you're a devil, you fear the Lord. Because they've seen what he can do. They've heard. They know. And so it strikes fear into their heart. You know why it's so easy to fall at salvation? It's because while we're seeing the grace of God, we're also viewing the judgment of God. We understand that we all like sheep have gone astray. We understand that there is none that doeth good. There is all, they have altogether become unprofitable. We understand that the wages of sin is death and that that death has been given to us by our father, Adam, and that has been passed down through our line and that there was one man one day who came uh, by a virgin who would uh, come and die on a cross for our sins. But at that moment, there ought to be some fear. There ought to be a fall and there ought to be a fear. That's the reaction that Saul had. I want you to notice finally the feeling. Now, this is back in Acts chapter 9, our text, verse number 6. We're right on time. Don't worry about that. Verse number uh, 6 of chapter 9, the Bible says, 
Lord, what will I have me to do? Lord, what do you want me to do? He's fallen. He's afraid. And he says, whatever it is. You know what I find so shameful is that in our gospel presentation, we forget that people are to sanctify themselves. We forget to mention that, oh, well, now you need to start living right because God saved you. And it's like we hide or cover up the hard part. Right? It's like, oh, I'm so glad saved you. And then we just leave them there and we say, well, we ought to be instructive. We ought to say, hey, man, it probably wouldn't be a good idea for you to go party on Friday night for God's just done this for you. But we almost sweep that under the rug. Saul says, whatever. You tell me. Lord, I've seen it. Lord, I've seen you. What do you want me to do? A true salvation experience will always resemble Saul's. It will always result in a broken and contrite heart saying, God, whatever it is. I struggle with people who get saved and then later on say, well, I don't, just don't think I ought to give that up. <clears throat> well, that's not really the way salvation works. For a person who's truly seen what God has done for them is willing to do anything for God. And us Christians who have become so accustomed to the grace of God and the salvation experience, what is it that God's trying to get you to give up on? For sanctification is a gradual but growing process. I feel like a lot of Christians just kind of stunt. I mean, they just kind of dwarf out. I mean, one day they were growing and then they just decided to stop. God told them to do something. They say, oh, well, I'm not willing to give that up. And God says, I'm waiting on you to give that one up before I can work on you again. See, there will be some resolution. There will be some giving up. There will be a thought, a heart that says, Lord, whatever you want from me, I'm willing to do it. Is that your heart? Oh, I hope it is. Because... Christ's heart was, Father, not my will, but thine be done. Lord, let this cup pass from me, nevertheless. Paraphrasing, whatever you want me to do. That's what Christ did for us. Now, what are we willing to do for Christ? Now, I want you to notice, finally, the magnificence of Christ. Now, we've seen the man against Christ, the meeting with Christ, but there are two individuals in our story tonight. There's Saul, and then there's the Lord Jesus. And you can't have salvation apart from Jesus. The Bible teaches that plainly. I don't need to recite you verses about that. But there comes a time when a man realizes that he was at enmity with God. And then a confrontation happens or a meeting takes place with God. And then that man on his knees confesses the magnificence of our Savior. And the Lord reveals three things about his magnificence tonight. First of all, his manifestation. Verse number three of chapter nine. 
And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus. And suddenly, there shined round about him a light from heaven. Verse 4, And he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Now, this is what I don't understand. Why God would choose Saul. I don't believe, and you can believe whatever you want, but I don't believe there's been anybody in history who opposed the church greater than Saul. I believe at that point, at the infancy of the church, everything was kind of new, and while there were thousands and thousands of being saved, I believe Paul, or, or Saul, had a greater hand in the discouragement of the church and the persecution of the church than anybody since. Why would God choose him? Why would God send his son to not only die for this man, but then to appear to this man and say, Saul, what are you doing? Saul, why are you doing what you're doing? Why would he do that? This is why. Because the Bible says the Lord is not slack concerning his promise. As some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Titus chapter 2 verse 11 says, For the grace of God that bringeth to salvation hath appeared to all men. See, the wonderful thing about my Savior is He's no respecter of persons. The wonderful thing about my Savior is He loves the most reprobate sinner as He does the one that should be the best person who we would, who would, we would conceive as a good person. He loves everyone. And it doesn't matter if you're Nicodemus in chapter 3 seeking the Lord, saying, Lord, uh, uh, how is it that a man should be born again? It doesn't matter if you're a Saul who persecutes the church. It doesn't matter if you're Peter on the shore fishing. It doesn't matter if you're uh, Nebuchadnezzar. God reveals himself to every man. And by manifestation of his son, he says, come to salvation. You see, why this is important is... If he wasn't that way, what if he didn't choose you? I'm so thankful I have a God that regardless of what I've done in my past, he showed himself to me. I'm thankful for the home I was raised in. I'm thankful that I had this church to be a pillar in my uh, foundation, in my development. But Jesus Christ loved me. And he showed me that he loved me. To every man there's a manifestation of God. But secondly, I want you to notice a majesty. A majesty. Verse number 3, the Bible says, And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. Now, I don't know if you know this, but later on in our chapter, it's quite clear. Let me see if I can find it. Uh, it's quite clear that Jesus appears to Saul. Not that it's just a, a, an angel that knocks him off his donkey or knocks him to the ground. It is Jesus appears to Saul. 
And what Saul saw, that's kind of hard to say, but what old Saul visualized, I don't know how to say that better, I don't know. Y'all help me out, I don't know. Y'all can preach whenever y'all get the chance, okay? But when Saul saw, man, that just doesn't sound good. I'm sorry, I don't know how to say that. Anybody have any suggestions? Miss Betty's like, no, just keep preaching, brother. You're good. You're good. Amen, Miss Betty. Thank you for your support. I appreciate that. I need your support and your prayers because I bet she's a better prayer than most of us. Amen. Uh, but uh, when Saul, man, I just don't know how it works. Vision. Vision. Envision. That almost makes it fake, though, that word, envision. But the reality is what he saw. No, that'll work. Thank you. Everybody give y'all a big clap. Y'all didn't help me at all, but clap for yourselves. <laughs> Sorry, I'm preaching to y'all like I preach to the teenagers. I'm sorry, I'm getting carried away. But what he saw was light. And that light was so bright that it blinded him. Y'all remember anything that Jesus said? Something like, I am the light of the world. Y'all remember John chapter 3 where the Bible says, and this is the condemnation. That light came into the world... And men love darkness rather than they loved light. You know who the light is? You know who the glory of God is? You know who, uh, who He is worship, worthy of worship and, and honor and glory and majesty? You know who that is? Jesus. And He's majestic. This week I went to the Alvarado bow shop. I was getting some new strings put on my bow. And... Uh, you can always go with a large manufacturer, uh, and, and they mass produce these strings for bows. But I decided to get a string made by Joe Schmo in the back of his garage. Maybe it'll come back to haunt me when I got a big deer out in front of me. I don't know. <laughs> but the thing that sold me was this: at the end of every string that he does, he puts a purple thread. You know what it stands for? The Majesty of Christ. The royalty of Christ. And how good we would do if we would just think about the majesty of our Savior a little bit more often. He is royal. And He left the the throne of heaven to come to this earth. He's a majestic Savior. Isaiah chapter 6, I've mentioned it once, but the Bible says that the seraphims that are in heaven who were made to worship God have to cover their face with two wings and have to cover their feet with two wings and they fly with two wings and as they look at my Savior, all they say is, Holy, Holy, Holy. That's my God. So when this light knocks Saul off his donkey or to the ground, however you want to think, when he did, this light was my glorious Savior showing himself to a man who didn't deserve it. When I was 12 years old, don't remember the preacher, don't remember the sermon. But that night, the royalty of heaven revealed himself to me. And I had heard the story so many times before, but that night, it touched me. And Jesus, the majestic Savior of the world, came and he died for me. The Bible says... John 8, 12, then Jesus spake unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness. Have you seen the light lately? 
You see, we need light to walk in a dark world. The Bible says that God would direct our paths if we would trust in Him. You know how He does that? He's a light unto our path. And He's a lamp unto our feet. Amen? The royalty, the majesty of our Savior. And finally, I want you to notice this. And I save this because I believe this is the best part. In verse number 4, His mercy. His mercy. And He fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto Him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? You see, Christ came to the worst sinner in the world, came to the man who deserved it the least, if you will, and that day he touched his heart, and he spoke directly to him. You know what's good about door knocking? Is I am promised that every single person that's behind the door I'm knocking on, Christ died for. I've never knocked on a door and had somebody come up and I'm like, yeah, I just, I just don't think he died for you. The Bible says, for God so loved the world that whosoever, I always talk to kids as I lead them through, a whosoever is? They're like, I don't know what a whosoever Well, it's whosoever. <laughs> whosoever. You see, God loved Saul just as much as he loved Barnabas, just as much as he loved Peter. And this day, God's mercy shone down on Saul. The Bible says in 1 John chapter 4, In this was manifested the love of God toward us. Because that God sent His only begotten Son in the world, that we might live through Him. Herein is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us. And He sent His Son to be a propitiation for our sins. The Bible gives me a promise in the book of the Revelation. Chapter number 3, verse number 20. Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man will hear my voice and open the door, I will enter in. I have a promise that His mercy exceeds man's wickedness every time. For where sin is great, grace is greater still. Isn't our Savior amazing? There will always be this pattern. A man will realize he's against God. There will be a meeting with God. And that man must recognize the majesty of God. That's the pattern. I told you briefly that we went to a concert last night. Uh, it was the Booth Brothers. Uh, they sing the song, maybe you're familiar with it, Ask the Blind Man, He Saw It All. It's a, like one of the most popular songs in Southern Gospel ever. Uh, and they sing many, many songs that you'd be very familiar with, as long as you're listening to good, wholesome, edifying, Christian-like music. But it's up to you, whatever. Uh, but, uh, uh, so the Booth Brothers were there. Uh, the Mark Tremel Quartet was there, and uh, the Browns were there. And we were enjoying the concert, and Brother Sean went with us because he's helping us out with the radio station. He has some radio experience, and so he was trying to get Mark Trammell's voice. Hi, this is Mark Trammell, and you're listening to Joshua Baptist Radio. Because we're getting tired of Brian Cohn on there, just saying. An oasis on the Internet. Uh, maybe you listened to it a little bit, but uh, we were at this concert, and um, 
Mark Trammell's group, once they were done, uh, they came down from the stage, and I actually went to the restroom, and I was able to see all of Mark Trammell's group. I mean, Mark Trammell, if y'all don't know, he's like a Southern Gospel Hall of Famer. I mean, the guy was in cathedrals. Uh, he was in Gold City. Like, both times, they were really awesome. Mark Trammell was in the group. And so, Mark Trammell, he's there, and he's standing right beside me. And, and one of my friends that graduated from college, he's actually singing tenor for him now. And so, I was like, hey, Dustin, what are you doing? He's like, leave me alone. No, he's like, you're just a preacher. No, he was cool. And, and so, I, I got to talk to him. We're having a good old time. And we left, and, and Brother Sean was like, man, I tried getting uh, the Booth brothers, but uh, they, they just don't come down after the concert. They don't come down in the intermission, and after the concert, they only briefly hang around the stage. And maybe you don't know this, but the Booth brothers are kind of getting really famous in, in Southern Gospel. They're very big. They're very popular. You know, it got me to thinking, I'm glad my Savior was available. Because if he had been like the Booth brothers, and bear with me on this, I'm not trying to you know, be blasphemous or anything, but I'm saying he made himself available for me. And he made himself available for all. Don't we have an awesome Savior? I'll have plenty of times to rip your face about prayer and about uh, 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 consecration. But tonight, you know all my goal was? To brag on Jesus. Because He's worthy of it. He came for me. And as Dad taught us this morning, He had to come find us. I'm thankful for it. I'm about to open up an invitation and I don't want you to bow your head or close your eyes yet. But let me challenge you this way. There's nothing shameful about bowing a knee and once again falling. Once again coming to an altar. And our altar is not made of wood. Our altar is Jesus Christ, if you study the book of Hebrews. Jesus is waiting for you. All you have to do is bow your head. But let me, listen, bow your heart. And open up and say, Lord... I remember that night 20 years ago. I remember that night two years ago. Lord, I remember that night two weeks ago where I fell in love with you. Lord, make that just as real today as it was back then.